Salaam and welcome to another TMV podcast brought to you by the Muslim Vibe. As always, I'm your host, Salim Carson. On this week's episode, I'm joined by Rukshana Chowdhury as my co-host. Um, she's the European editor at the Muslim Vibe. You may remember her from an earlier episode and we're hoping, inshallah, that she's going to be start- starting to make more regular appearances on the podcast. She's helping to produce um, certain episodes and bring in guests. And this is an example of one of those. So on the podcast today, we're talking about equality or I guess inequality um, within the kind of education system, looking at things like social mobility, positive discrimination, um, and and I guess what the, the future holds. And our guest could not be the better person or, or the, could not be a better person, in my opinion, to, to speak on this topic. Um, Dr. Soraya B is a, a, an academic. She has a PhD um, and is the CEO and report author of the Equality Act Review and the founder of the Journal of British Muslim Studies. Her story is genuinely fascinating. We, we, we start off by talking about that and her background and how she got into this whole thing. And, and the, I guess the struggles that she's faced from even before entering the working world, but even at university or, or before she was getting into university and everything else, she was told by her um, by her sixth form advisor that she would never get into uni and there was no point applying um, and then ended up going to Oxford University in the UK. Um, she also studied at Yale and Stanford and, and obviously has a PhD. Uh, it, it's quite a remarkable story, but it, it's, there's so much more to it. But, but beyond her own story, we also talk about generally, as, as I mentioned, you know, the issues surrounding um, equality and specifically the Equality Act in the UK that was brought about in 2010. Um, we do go into a bit more detail about, about that specifically, but then also more broadly talking about the, the, the systematic problems um, and, and how we can address it. And also looking at, you know, within Muslim communities, um, the issues when it comes to access to education, for example, for women specifically. Um, and various other things it's a fascinating conversation we the, the time just kind of flew by as we were talking um and, and i think it, you'll you'll find it very interesting and very enjoyable um before we get on with the podcast the kind of usual announcements if you are not a subscriber to the podcast please do hit the subscribe button uh it's interesting we had like a bit of a dip during covid in terms of numbers um early on but now we're seeing the numbers climb back up again so please do continue listening spread the word tell your friends tell your family um share the episode on social media whatever else also um i mentioned this quite often on the podcast and and i had a, a lovely email this week and i'm in touch with a, with a guy now from canada um one of our younger listeners i think he's 17, 16 or 17 who, who gave some some great feedback and some ideas actually for for future content so please do get in touch if you have any thoughts any feedback um criticism comments whatever it might be it's really important uh, and very helpful for us and for me as well to to make sure that we're tailoring the content for our audience so if you do have any thoughts you can reach out to me on editor at the muslim and finally um if you do enjoy the podcast and you are a regular listener um uh do consider giving us a five star rating on the apple podcast store thing um the other platforms like Spotify, I don't think have a rating system, but on Apple, you know, it, it's, it's it's a couple of clicks um, and, and, a, and a nice review would also be good. Just a few lines about how great the podcast is and how much you love it um, would really go a long way. But yeah, without further ado, here is my conversation or our conversation with uh, Dr. Soraya B.
Salam, Dr. B. Walaikum salam. Salam, Dr. B. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Thank you. Um, thank so you. To... Sorry, no, I, I, I was going to say thank you very much for, for joining us on the podcast. I, I know you're, you're incredibly busy with the work that you do and, and lecturing at SOAS and everything else. Um, it really does mean a lot. Um, and obviously, yeah. Rukshana as well, it's good to have you back on the podcast after quite thank some time. Much. Thank you so much. It's such a, it's a, it's a real honor. So thank you for having me on. I'm really excited. Not at all. I, I think the, the best place to start would actually be with just a bit of background on yourself um, mm-hmm. and, and the work that you do. And I guess that the sort of um, origin story of how you got to being involved in this kind of work and why it's so kind of close to your heart. So I, I'll just hand straight over to you to tell us a bit more, a bit more about yourself. Yeah, no, thank you so much. I think, um, you know, growing up in um, inner city Birmingham and kind of seeing disadvantage and inequality all around me, um, it was always something that's going to naturally be close to my heart, you know, um, especially as a young young child who has um, aspirations and dreams, but is always kind of told, well, actually, um, this is not for you or this career is not for you because, you know, people like you don't go into these uh, sorts of careers um, or and just kind of knowing that the expectations around you are not as high, yet you know that, you know, you have high expectations for yourself. Um, so it's always kind of this dichotomy between what you know about yourself and what others believe or have in mind for you and that there's not exactly an equilibrium there. Um, but also I think um, having worked really hard and got into Oxford, um, you know, you, you, you believe this, um, this idea of meritocracy, you believe this idea of social mobility um, and you're like, okay, well, it is true. And you're, you kind of sold this idea. I'm not sure where the idea came from, um, but you are sold this idea that uh, you're able to um, kind of, the harder you work, the, the better you, the, the more success you'll receive. Um, I think what really, really hit me and what was a pivotal moment and will forever be a pivotal moment for me in my life was having graduated from Oxford, having completed my master's and just been on the cusp of starting my uh, PhD. Um, I was in a job at a school in Birmingham and um, I raised a concern. And by the way, that job I had was to fund my uh, PhD um, studies. I, I wasn't one of the few, you know, one of the lucky 5% of students who received a scholarship to, uh, to fully fund my PhD. So I, I was working to fund myself. And so at this job, I raised a concern um, that 11 year old students were being taught um, were, were shown an 18 rated uh, video footage of um, people jumping to their deaths during the 9-11 attacks. Um, and this, eight, this 18 rating caution came up for about 12 seconds on the screen and the students didn't really understand what was going on. They didn't understand whether this was a movie, whether this was real life, because they were 11 at the time. So this had predated, 9-11 was not in their lifetime, it happened before they were born. And after raising that concern, and it was a legitimate concern because when you, there's a lot of studies that say if you view suicide in the media, you're more likely to conduct copycat suicides. And 11 to 18 year old globally, that cohort are at risk of committing suicide more than anyone else uh, or any other age groups. So this was a safeguarding concern, at least the way I perceived it. And when I raised a concern about it, 
I was told about half an hour after raising the concern that I needed to leave the premises immediately um, and pack my How bags. How did you feel when you were told that you'd have to go? Oh, I was, I was crushed, you know, it was so crushing. I didn't understand what was happening. I knew, you know, when I raised a concern, I was told that I did the right thing, that it would be looked into, that, you know, it wasn't, it shouldn't have been shown. And we'll look at other materials that could have, you know, could have been used to teach the, the lesson. And that's all really that I'd hoped for, that another kind of source was used to teach the lesson on, um, it was an English literature lesson teaching a poem by Simon Arpentage called um, Out of the Blue, um, which doesn't make any reference to 9-11. Um, and so I was really crushed. I didn't understand what was happening. Um, and I appealed the decision. Um, it wasn't upheld. Um, it was denied. Um, and the teacher, the white British teacher Sorry, who showed Can I just them, clarify, when you say it wasn't upheld, you mean that, that, mm, that they admitted it was wrongful termination? <clears throat> no, my, my appeal... Your appeal wasn't to, upheld. My appeal at that stage um, with the school directly to uh, appeal my dismissal was not mm. upheld. It was not uh, successful. They stood by the decision to sack me and so i was left with very li limited options and i knew what happened was wrong i knew that an injustice had occurred um and i knew that it at that moment you know when you when something happens and you know deep down that it's discriminatory but you have no evidence to prove it i think a lot of bame individuals in this country have probably experienced that moment in their lives mm. where they know something is discriminatory or racist but they have no proof um, to, to prove that. So anyway, um, I went to, um, I decided that I was going to go to court uh, for this, uh, to, to fight the injustice. And in my approaching kind of the legal system, which I was very new to, I had no, no previous um, knowledge about law, I'd never studied it. Um, I approached solicitors and the solicitors that I had approached, they were numerous and they had said that you're not going to get any money from this, maximum a week's wages, there's no point in going to court, just forget about it. And for me, and I remember mentioning quite clearly to one of the solicitors was, it's not about the money, it's about the injustice. At this moment, I'd rather give money to yeah. fight the injustice. It's not about the money that I receive. This is wrong that's happened. And... I had that conviction in my in my heart, in my soul, that this is what happened was wrong, and I I I I knew come what may, I will fight this. So you so anyway, self-represented yourself. I did, yeah. So I I I I submitted the um, paperwork to the Employment Appeal Tribunals. Um, I did apply for legal aid, but um, legal aid. Uh, was decided to cherry pick parts of my identity and I actually have a paper um, which you know I'll, I'll share with you after um, after this, uh, this this recording that you can you can see it's it's in one of my publications on uh, multiple jeopardy um, is a letter from uh, the legal aid agency and they say in black and white that while you financially qualify for legal aid we're not going to give it to you because you're educated you have a degree from oxford you are you've completed a master's you're studying a phd and you're well qualified to speak to represent yourself and my response to them was and i appealed to them about three times and it was rejected on all accounts um, that regardless of how educated you are, you should never be required to cross-examine the very people that discriminated against you. 
So did you and think that was the hardest thing? Do you think social mobility came came into that then? Because at one point that you're being told financially you're you're eligible you're eligible, but socially you're not eligible because you're classed. Well, that's the impression that they were giving to you. Yes, absolutely. Quite educated. So was. <clears throat> What was the sort of relationship with social mobility then? Yeah, so it was just a mix match, really, where things were not al aligning. Just because you went to university, it doesn't mean that automatically you're going to be financially stable upon graduation. Um, and it's increasingly the likelihood that that's not the case for a lot of graduates. Um, and it was in my case at the time anyway. Um, and just using the fact that you have... X amount of education so therefore you do not need legal representation it's not about the finances it's about whether you deserve legal representation or not and in this case I feel it was really um, it was it was unfair for them to say you don't need legal representation just because you have come through the education system I did come through the education system but it wasn't to do with law and I think the legal aid agency with the cutbacks with the the, the decade of austerity that we've been um, experiencing under the conservative government le legal aid has been cut back and unfortunately this is uh, one of the impacts that a lot of people are, are having to represent themselves um, going back to the case though as I was saying that I did represent myself, I submitted the documentation for the case and that this was back in 2015 um, and ever since then this is still been ongoing and it's been five years. In 2017 I did win some accounts, um, I had a major victory uh, on the unfair dismissal, the whistleblowing element and the victimization. Unfortunately the judges the Employment Tribunal did not view this to be discrimination, despite there being solid evidence to um, prove that this was discrimination. Um, but I, I think, as I was saying, that this was a really a pivotal moment for me in my life because I really saw many wavelengths, many bands of inequality experienced simultaneously so for example while I was experiencing discrimination from the school who dismissed me because I was Muslim in one of their statements they said that we believed she um, she thought that we were being anti-Muslim um, there were there were there were documents flying around you know associating me with the Trojan horse affair just because I went to a school that was part of the Trojan horse affair before it became a Trojan horse affair school there were there were emails that were saying things like that there was emails saying so that I'd you done my dissertation you were being on, attacked as I'm afraid there was yeah yes absolutely I think Birmingham has been politicised as a city because of many, many events, um, a lot of which the media is responsible for, um, and most recently the Trojan Horse Affair. Um, I think because of that, it's been politicised. Um, there's a lot of Islamophobia, at least in perception of Birmingham and its Muslim community. Um, and I think I was victimised because of that, and I was discriminated because of due to association. Um, and I think throughout this whole process, I became well versed in the Equality Act, and I became really well exposed to the Equality Act 2010, which is a government legal legislation for this country protecting well supposed to be protecting minorities and people with protected characteristics. But what I experienced was that 
actually the Equality Act, it's not fit for purpose for not only Muslims, but other protected characteristics um, and, and communities such as the disabled um, community um, and also the homeless community, socioeconomic before, inequality. Sorry, but before we get into the kind of... Um, but by the way, actually, before, I, before we speak about the Equality Act, I think um, the backstory that you just provided is, is incredibly mm -hmm. fascinating. Um, even when we spoke earlier before, when we were kind of discussing doing this podcast, we had this whole conversation about diversity and equality and, and the Equality Act and all the work that you do. And then almost yeah. right at the end of the call, you started speaking about all of this stuff. And, and both me and Rukshan afterwards were like, this is, this is unbelievable. Um, just in terms of like how much you've been through and the fact that you couldn't yeah. get legal aid representation, you represented yourself and, and you've kind of, it seems like at least for a long time, you've, you've had to persevere on your own. And I guess, I, I, I mean, one question I do have is, is you mentioned what kind of lawyers were saying about getting one week's pay, but what was, um, what was it like with your family and friends and those around you that were maybe sympathetic towards your cause, but obviously weren't in the same struggle directly? Yeah, I think, you know, the biggest shock for me was this shock that, you know, having experienced so-called social mobility and, uh, you know, being in, gone through the system, you know, especially when you come from Adam Rock and you go to Oxford and then at Oxford, everyone tells you, you know, you're the bee's knees, uh, you know, you're going to do really well you're going to have all the job offers in the world lying at your feet and for many of my peers that was the case and I was really well supported at Oxford I think the level of support that the university gave to me was you know it's it's just you know I have not found that anywhere outside any other institution um, but coming out on the other side into the real world as they say it was a completely different story and I think the shock of it was that this was not meant to happen. This, why has this happened? And as I mentioned in one of my papers, is that no matter how educated you are, at the end of the day, I have experienced only being judged by the two yard cloth that I wrap around my head. And that is what defines me. And when people look at me, they don't look at, they don't see the Oxford graduate. They don't see that I've got a PhD. They don't see anything but my headscarf first and foremost and I think that is inescapable and so when it comes to diversity and inclusion we can have all of the diversity and inclusion in the world but what you cannot where you cannot in, where you cannot get to where you cannot reach is the stereotypes that form behind people's eyes that sit behind people's eyes and guide their sight in the everyday um, because that's what it boils down to and until we can change the stereotypes and the narratives that dictate how people and dictate the paradigms within which people practice their everyday sight and visibility unfortunately i don't think inclusion and diversity and inclusion really has that effect um, at least not in my case i know i you know sometimes we have to be cautious and nuanced things but in my case I have experienced this this kind of domino effect of discrimination from which started in employment and reached to actually experiencing structural inequality from the courts who were unsympathetic to being a litigant in person and then universities because I was a PhD student at UCL my 
main source of income for funding my PhD, I'd lost that. And UCL, absolutely. And, and throughout my four years at UCL, I was, you know, writing to them again and again saying, look, can you provide financial assistance so I don't need to work evenings as a medical secretary at the dental hospital or at the university hospitals, Birmingham, um, you know, just to, to finance myself or do part-time work and focus fully on my PhD. And unfortunately, I had to have multiple jobs throughout my PhD because University College London, they said in plain, you know, English, they said, we do not believe that your original plan to fund yourself was robust enough. And I said to them, for someone from my background who has never ever, whose vocabulary did not include the word PhD until she was 20, um, and having come to a PhD, and you know, for all the DNI, the diversity inclusion, and all the um, kind of reputational um, management that universities do, especially UCL, who recently changed some of the building names in light of BLM, um, I think it's pointless until they actually change the structural um, policies that are absolutely oppressive and discriminatory to students like myself. And I, I think also, if we, if we go back slightly towards um, your time at Oxford, so again, earlier when we spoke, you said something very interesting, which was about um, how even though you know you you broke that glass ceiling and 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 at the time i think you know you said that you you bought this narrative of social mobility and oh it's a level playing field and and there was support to get into university i guess the difference then is like you mentioned you were at university with you know children or grandchildren of un representatives who had mm -hmm. the networks and the access and the opportunities Whereas what it feels like, and, you know, based on your experience post-university as well, is that you had this, you know, Oxford educated experience, which is what a lot of our uh, MPs and heads of states have, but then there was kind of no follow-up or no follow-on plan, which I guess is, yeah. which, which kind of shows the, the issue here, right? And, and for me, at least comes into this whole conversation around equality and, and, and like we said, social mobility. So... I think it's quite interesting and strong that, that you started off basically by talking about social mobility being a lie that you were fed um, in your own yeah. um, head um, and have now kind of moved in a different direction. And I think that, you know, yeah. then what I wanted to ask actually when I first um, interrupted you at some point was with the Equality Act, I think before talking about the issues with it and, and the unprotected groups that should be protected, I feel like for a lay person like myself, um, it would be good to get an understanding of what the Equality Act is and, and how it's relevant, I guess, to your case, but also more, more broadly, because a lot of people might have maybe heard of it on the news or not heard of it at all. But I think because it's quite central to the work that you do and the conversation we want to have about um, diversity, inclusion, all of these kinds of things, um, it would be good to get like a quick overview from yourself if you can. Yeah, so the Act, um, well, the Equality Act is, was brought about in 2010 um, to ensure that, protect, to ensure that people who have uh, characteristics such as religion or race are protected and uh, basically to ensure that we are living in a fair and equal society um, but mm -hmm. a lot of times with law, it's, it's prescriptive and it's not actually practiced. I think that's one of the things that we're facing. 
Um, and so it's it's advised or well it's law for employers particularly or organization public sector organizations individuals who are using the service especially employees um, to follow the um, equality act and it gives um, particularly employees certain rights um, that they they know that they're protected within a workplace in particular um, and it covers it basically it covers everyone in the UK um, and the idea is that anyone who has these protected characteristics um, who belongs to or self-identifies within this uh, certain groups or multiple groups that they are protected from discrimination harassment and victimization um, and so some of the, the there's nine protected characteristics so you're protected by age disability gender reassignment uh, marriage and civil partnership uh, pregnancy and maternity uh, race religion sex and there's one more um, sexual orientation I think I've mentioned all of them um, I, th I think I have yeah I, yeah I think I have um, sorry if I've missed any out I'm sure I mentioned nine um, but um, so, so there's that, quite an irony the sorry there's quite an irony now irony about missing out one of the protected characteristics on the Equality Act um, but yeah we, we, we can move on <laughs> um, so, so the idea is that if you belong to one of those groups um, or multiple groups and you're protected under the Equality Act from discrimination, harassment, um, victimization, um, and you could bring about a legal case um, uh, litigation around um, if you feel that you've been mistreated or discriminated against. Um, but also it's, it's, a, it's a guide for employers or it's not, it's not exactly a guide, but it's law for employers and, and public sector organisations to ensure that they make the organization the, the the employment company accessible and accommodate on these protected characteristics to ensure that there's fairness and equality within the organization no one actually feels left behind or left out so, so you uh, were quite vocal in regards to the recent uh, England's A-level downgrade in, in August, which had affected students from disadvantaged areas consisting mainly of black and Asian. Um, and your report also focuses on Muslim, Muslim students. Uh, and you sort of criticised and had warned the Department of Education about that algorithm and have done reports about it. How did you predict and realize that it would have a negative Im impact and why do you think that your sort of concerns mm -hmm. with other similar organizations were actually ignored effectively okay so um this is a really great question as i you know as we've been discussing the equality review it's something that i've been doing since 2018 but it was set up through the exposure that i had with the equality act review sorry the equality act 2010 through my own experiences of fighting um, injustice in the employment tribunals um, and part of the remit of the organization is to look at anything or issues that would widen the inequality gap so as soon as the government announced that exams were going to be cancelled um, and that there was going to be an algorithm used to predict uh, student grades that was alarming from the very outset for me um, especially because I myself was predicted, uh, my sixth form advisor predicted, uh, and not even predicted, he was of the belief uh, that 
I would never get into university. He said that I would receive five rejections from UCAS. And um, I did not listen to him. And this was in 2010. So it was 10 years before what we're, the, the social and, and the world global environment, the circumstances that we're currently experiencing. Um, obviously pre-COVID, uh, and my teacher said to me, you're not going to get into university. And I didn't listen. I continued to apply. I submitted my UCAS application. Thank God that UCAS allow you to some autonomy for students to submit their own UCAS applications okay. without the can, can permission I, of. I'm I'm really sorry, but I, I'm I'm just uh, I'm, I'm mind boggled that like I mean on what basis? Because you you obviously went to Oxford and then went on to yeah, a master's and a PhD. But how, as in, on what basis did the sixth form advisor tell you that he, he didn't think, like, were your grades not good enough? Well, my grades were good enough. I mean, I was getting the straight A's and everything, but I, I'm not sure, I'm still to this day baffled myself as to why he did, why he said that. Um, and so I continued to apply. I got my case at Oxford um, and then ended up getting the grades and got in. But if I, my point is that if I listened to him, if my grades were predicted as they were for many of the students, well, all of the students this year, then I would never have gone on to study at Oxford, at Yale, at Stanford. And I'm not just name, mentioning names here or University or Ivy League or, you know, Oxford names here. I'm mentioning them because to really them, underscore, <laughs> thanks, um, to underscore the, the, the serious loss of opportunity that I would have experienced if my grades predicted. And as a result of that, what students this year would be going through? So you categorically um, wouldn't have gotten in oh, the no. algorithm? All right, so, so oh, here, no, here's, not, here's not with this the, algorithm, no. Here's the important question from my side, is that when, mm. when you found out you got into Oxford, um, mm. how, how did you break the news to this guy and what was his reaction? You know what, honestly, Slim, I wish that social media was, you know, as, as popular as it is today, back then, 10 years ago. I mean, we didn't have the Instagrams and the Snapchats, otherwise I would have recorded it and it probably would have gone viral. <laughs> um, but we, I received my letter on the 22nd of December after my interview I got the place and it was a yellow letter from Modern College and I was absolutely ecstatic that I'd got in. After Christmas holidays, I went in back in January um, to uh, see my quiz advisor and the, and the team. And I said, oh, I've got a belated Christmas present for you. <laughs> and I handed in, I handed the letter and he's like, oh, his name is Andy. And Andy said, oh, um, okay, what's this? And I was like, okay, you know, you read it, open it. And so the team gathered around him, who's sitting on his desk. I, I remember it as if it just happened like five months ago. Um, he opened it, he opened the letter and honestly, their jaws just like fell to the floor and they were absolutely gobsmacked that I had a place at Oxford despite them telling me that I would never have gotten I would never get into university and I think this this lack of expectations lack of aspiration for black and ethnic minority students is rife it's rife in disadvantaged areas like Alan Rock like parts of East London you know um you know especially in the north in in high kind of in areas where there's large Muslim or fame populations communities I think there's a lack of definitely teachers expect less of those students and that's what we we found in the report as well so Together with my experience and the experience of my colleagues and my peers at the time when we were sitting our um, A-levels, I found, I knew that this, this algorithm was going to be 
you know, is going to be shambles. Um, and so at the very outset, I submitted a, um, uh, an off-qual kind of evidence form advising them not to use this um, algorithm because of if you're basically going to be using the students, the school's background and their affiliate, their uh, past performances, you are going to marginalise um, and, and, and discriminate against many students because of social background and socioeconomic background because the schools that have are more affluent they'll have more resources they will be doing better and historically that's the case that's the case in social mobility studies and the schools that don't have as many resources they have lower performances so it's unfair to penalize students based on their school performances and that should be discrimination under social um, economic background but we'll get to that because social economic background is not a protected characteristic under the equality act that's one of the things we're fighting for but we'll discuss that in shortly so Oh, sorry. Uh, you mentioned about uh, the exam regulator, uh, Ofqual. Yeah. And they actually published uh, a detailed analysis saying that they kind of actually admitted that pupils in disadvantaged areas were in fact marked down. And they're in the analysis, and, and I quote this: they said there's some evidence to suggest that pupils' characteristics can influence teacher assessments. Can you elaborate? Uh, from your own report which you've done what do mm. they mean by people's characteristics what are the other things that sort of um, students are kind of up against yeah so this is the thing um, we found um, a lot of other factors that lead to a result to lower teacher predicted grades um, and these include uh, teacher unconscious bias um, Islamophobia even though we found 4.6% of students said that Islamophobia was going to be a factor, it was still significant um, in, in the cohort, in the sample size. Um, we also found bad behaviour to be one of them. And this is bad behaviour is something that is reoccurring from our previous report in June and our upcoming report, which will be out in, in a few weeks, exploring the post um, results experiences of students, post receiving results. Um, and a lot of the students, uh, probably around 40 to 50 percent, are saying that their bad behaviour has um, influenced teachers reducing their grades or marking them down. Um, and these are the things that we were telling the Department of Education and Ofqual, we were advising them to ensure that teachers were receiving um, unconscious bias training, how, the, how, how was the, um, to, to streamline the the grade appeal, the appeal process. Um, there was no heed from them actually. There was no success in actually getting through to them. I think the people, it was a very gated process. It was a very gated um, consultation experience um, that especially that we as from the Equality Act Review experienced. Um, but uh, one of the things that we, we, we said very clearly to them was that if this was to be to go forward and it did, they did go forward with, the, with, the, with their plans of the, of the algorithm that many students would lose out on their future and hence the, hence the title of the report is predicting futures. We cannot predict futures. If we are predicting futures, there's no way a great prediction can capture student um, talent, student 
potential student, you know, a lot of these students were sitting, their, their grades that were being predicted on mock exams that took place in December 2019 or October 2019. And students said that they'd actually revised so much since, uh, since then, since December, autumn last year to the summer 2020. And a grade prediction cannot capture that potential, the progress. Um, many students, actually more than 50% of students highlighted that learning style was a significant inhibitor, um, uh, an obstacle for their grade predictions because as, you, as, we, as I'm sure all of us are familiar with, many students will revise quite last minute so the cramming revision that doesn't mean that they're stupid that doesn't mean that they're not capable we, we, we know, you know about i think that we've though. all yeah, i think we've all done that you know we have all crammed revision at some point in our lives i've done that that doesn't mean that you know my progress that i made you know last year i'm not at the same position and if my performance at the moment is going to be graded on what i did last september that's not a, it's not a great prediction. So I, I, the thing is, I don't, and it I don't falls wanna, flat on its face, really. I, I don't want to get, get dragged into a, a, a deep in-depth conversation about the specifics of, of exams, because like, I mean, personally, mm. just my own personal opinion is that I think the exam system is flawed in that I remember um, failing one AS level exam. Um, mm. It was an economics exam and, and, and I, I was, my teacher was shocked and so was I. So we got the paper, you know, mm. you can pay to get it back. And then we went through it together and basically I'd answered all the questions correctly, but just not in the format that, so I knew the answers basically, but I didn't write it down in the way that they wanted it written down. Um, and, and, right, and so right. I, I feel like there's a very specific method, especially at like GCSE and A-level where it is very much tick box. Um, whereas I think, you know, university becomes a bit more, um, about substance and, and whatever else, but like, you know, there are certain things that you have to do to get the higher grades and it's about learning yeah. to pass rather than um, actually knowing your stuff. Right. Um, but you know, I, it's deeper. Okay. Go on. It's deeper. You know, when they say that English proficiency or lack of proficiency, one of the forthcoming articles that I'm working on is titled locked out of um, language and law. So we as BAME students, have i mean you know we, we've been talking post blm and even pre-blm um especially dni diversity and inclusion we talk about white spaces you don't necessarily have to have white people to be in a white space unfortunately we are governed by white spaces they're all around us and one of the things that they're around us in and we are um we are penalized for is not knowing language and when i say not knowing language we all know english but it's about how to use english and how english is and this is something i've come up against again and again and again in my employment tribunals is that you need to use language in a certain way because the judges will not accept it in any other format yeah. and as someone who is not a legal professional i don't have the the queen's english it's not even about the queen's english it's about presenting yourself in a certain way and a lot of that comes through language i'll give you i'll give you one example i know i've cut you off salim um fine. but it's it's really potent because it comes back to this you know you didn't you, you didn't write it down in the way that it was an acceptable way. You knew all the answers, but you didn't write it down. And I think this is something that we need to look into. And my article looks into this locked out of uh, the language and the law. So recently um, I was doing an application and one of the, th one of the questions was, um, could you um, outline how your policies or how your work is radical? And I refused to answer that question. I wrote in the box, I said, 
I don't like the term radical here because this is a white space. You may be, uh, there might be brown people or Bain people on the panel, but by using the word radical, you are locking me out of the language and law because as a Muslim woman, if I was to use the word radical, that would come up in a very different uh, connotations mm -hmm. uh, because radical, radicalization, the language has been colonized to mean something, right? And now when that language is being appropriated in a completely different way by, um, by you know, in an application, it's, it's re-entering our language, our discourse, but in a completely different way, it's, it's still only available to a certain class of people to be able to use lang uh, words such as radical. Um, that's still not available to me. If I use the word radical and people saw me with a hijab and using the word radical, it would mean something different. Mm -hmm. And so the, the types of words that are available to us, the types of vocabulary that's available to us, it is down to that you know that that's a level of precision that we need to look at and i really realize this in oxford and again as i said in in the um in the uh employment tribunals it's about you have to learn the the language of the system it's not only being present in the system or having a seat at the table and representation and this idea what i mentioned before this the stereotypes that guide the 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 way that the site is is practiced by people it's not only about that but it's also about language there's there's a wonderful article by benjamin wolf in the in 1954 that's published title language is reality and it, it's true and going back to your point about you knew all the answers but you didn't you didn't write it in the way that they found acceptable or they deemed to be worthy of a grade you know and so it's about that packaging it needs to be packaged properly and a lot of people are currently focused on what the visibility is uh, which is right rightfully so but we also need to look at the language and how as Bain people we are locked out of the language a lot of the times and it's also similar, sorry, to use another another example. Only on Thursday last week, I was, I, you know, I was having an, as you know, academic. So I was interviewing for a lectureship and um, I was told, I haven't, I haven't made this public, by the way. So the, this is, you're the first people outside of my Lovely. family and friends who know this. I, lo I love um, an exclusive on the TMB yeah, podcast. No, this is completely exclusive. <laughs> um, I was told, by the way, that um, my research is explosive. And I'm still scratching my head because I'm thinking to myself, okay, so if I'm researching on men's mental health, Muslim men's social mobility, Muslim women um, and empowerment and feminism from the Muslim women's perspective and social mobility studies and race and ethnicity studies, how on earth is that explosive? And and the question that followed up was, have you received any pushback? And if so, what, how did you deal with it? And I didn't, you know, I didn't receive the job in the end. Um, I, I, was, I was considered to be too radical and uh, my research to be too explosive, not to fit in with this particular university. I won't give its name, um, but it shows oh, We're happy that to hear the name if you want to share it. We don't mind. I, I, I don't, I don't want to, I, I think, fine, you know, <laughs> I, I don't want to experience any, you know, uh, pushback or anything. Any more um, pushback. Yeah, or any more. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, but the story remains is that people like myself who are researching these pertinent issues, um, we're being labeled as 
um, you know, our research is being labeled as explosive. And again, you know, how on earth, I, I would never even think of using the word radical or explosive because I've been conditioned in a way that those words mean something. They mean something in a particular frame, framework and that's terrorism and extremism. So I would never use them as a Muslim woman wearing a hijab. I would never say explosive or um, radical to describe something. Those two words that obviously are sort of bone of contention because of the reasons you explained, did you give that feedback to the university? I didn't, know. I didn't. Do you think, I maybe, haven't. You think maybe upon you reflection you've spoken about it now? No. I should. Time. I just. I just feel that if I did, I. See, so I would. You know. So, sorry. You know. Uh, it's, it's really interesting, actually, this point because you spoke about um, when when the application that you were filling out used the word radical. It was mm. a, a term that had been col colonized and repurposed and whatever yeah. else. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you do you not think you're 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 fitting into that or, or you're conforming with that um, mindset? It was such an by, irony. Do you know what no, I mean? But no, but I, I mean, yeah. by your, your decision to not use those words, like I feel mm. like as most, I, I get what you're saying, don't get me wrong, like I'm not going to say explosive mm. on, on a plane as a bearded man, but mm. being able to use language and not restrict ourselves because of perceptions of others, do you not think you're kind mm. of conforming to that whole colonized minds type mentality? I, so the, 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 the point, the, the interesting thing is I didn't even realize I was doing it. Mm. until I reflected on it as an academic I was thinking well why wouldn't I use it and that's when I that's when I realized that actually it's as deep as being locked out of the language yeah, yeah. um you know on the other point about um uh, you know mentioning to the university you know the irony is that they asked me to talk about what decolonize it how my studies how my research how my academic um, work contributes to decolonization of the subject of the university and I had so many examples to give them about how I'm decolonizing the university and I have a theory of decolonization it's called the cycle of decolonization and I'm writing paper on it and you know I, I told them all about that and you know they love that part they love the part about bridging research academic research to policy and everything but what they didn't like and this is something that comes up time and time again it is the idea that Muslim men cannot be vulnerable. And so my PhD research focused on um, experiences of Muslim men um, from South Asia to the UK, uh, particularly migrant husbands. And I found amongst many other things, domestic violence that had happened that they were subjected to, as well as precarious working conditions, a rise in mental health, et cetera, et cetera. And so there was a lot of research on Muslim women, but there's not enough on Muslim men. And this is something, an active line of inquiry that I'm contributing to through my work. Um, I've got one a report coming up uh, on the work and career development of Muslim men, which is due out in 2021. Mm. Um, and so I actually was not funded for this PhD research. And I say openly, I've said in my lectures, I've said in this interview that I also mentioned in, in the lecture that I was supposed to give as part of the interview, I mentioned that if my research was looking at South Asian migrant men who were coming to the UK and engaging in radicalization or extremism, I would have had money chucked at me left, right and center. However, because I'm looking at something that is the opposite, not conforming to the to the narrative of the um, of the state of institutions of the Western eye, the gaze towards the East. Um, my research and I was 
pushed to the margins. I wasn't, there were times where I was going to leave um, and I was going to give up my PhD because I just didn't have the money for it. Um, but I, I continued and because I felt it was so important to get this narrative out in the open that Muslim men can also be vulnerable. They're not always these powerful patriarchs and oppressors that the world makes them out to be. And can, we need can, that nuance. Can I ask a question? <laughs> sorry, 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 just quickly. Um, mm. It feels like you've alluded to the fact that within the academic sphere, um, through funding, there is a skew towards a particular prevalent narrative. And oh, that... I've argued that. I've argued that. I've okay. argued that. But, but um, in, I, I mean, in, in, in my in, lectures, so, so I, there is like, but, 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 so I, I understand that's your um, perspective. And it's very interesting because I've, I've personally kind of always felt that a little bit because I, I, I've seen how organizations and institutes are set up and think tanks and whatever else. And there is an agenda whether they say it or not. And they, they get that out through academic research and papers. And, you know, they, 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 they give uh, prominence to an argument. But what's the field amongst, I mean, sorry, what's the feeling amongst other academics in the field? Do people feel the same way? Or is it just, are you like one voice amongst the sea of people that think everything's fine? I am, from my experience, I'm one voice at the moment. And it's a lonely journey. And when I mention it, for example, I mentioned it in my interview, as I mentioned last week, I, I was told that I was, my research, my, my thinking was explosive but it, it, it's it's absolutely true like if I was researching or had researched um, Muslim men's uh, migrant Muslim men's engagement with terrorism and extremism I would have had money chucked at me I know it I wouldn't have suffered and, and experienced the hardship that I did as a PhD student um, and time and again I was refused by my university to uh, fund me and you know the, the irony is that a year, less than a year after completing my PhD an MP actually employed the research in a briefing that I had with her in um, her second the second reading of the domestic violence abuse bill domestic abuse bill um, her name's Vera Hobhas you can read it and you can watch her speech she's mentioned it in there she's actually taken my research and you know put it to the government um, and I'll continue doing that because there needs to be a lot of activism around this. Um, so I, I think that this explosiveness comes towards, as a Muslim woman, how on earth you're supposed to be oppressed? How on earth can you say that, you know, we as women need to also consider the, um, the, the impact of our policies on Muslim men or men in general? Now, I, um, I want to share with you a very pivotal moment in my academic life um, that you know really interested me in this line of you know how to frame my 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 thinking it was as an undergraduate i was shown a documentary where um teachers were teaching a group of girls in a classroom in afghanistan a village in afghanistan they all had a uniform on had desks and pencils and the teacher was writing the alphabet on the on the board and there was a young boy outside he was wearing rugged clothes hadn't you know really washed his face it's the documentary is called Af, uh, Afghan Alphabet by the way you can probably research it search it and watch it yourselves um, and the documentary focused on this young boy who was sitting outside of the classroom door the doors were open obviously it was hot um, and he was writing copying the teacher's alphabet from the board into the sand Oh. And it showed that there's been a lot of development, a lot of empowerment for Muslim women across the world, which is a great thing. But Muslim men are being left behind. 
And we see this in this country. We don't need to go to developing countries to, to see this. We see this in this country, you know, from the marriage crisis to the incarceration levels to um, the housing crises. We need empowerment. We need development um, for, we need strategies for not only Muslim men, Muslim women, but Muslim men too, until we have that equality in resources for both Muslim men and yeah. women, we will not be able to have the socioeconomic changes that we so desperately need. And this is something that both government, both universities, both academics, both experts that I speak to just do not seem to understand. So I feel like I am a lone voice in a black hole. Being a sort of lone voice, obviously there have been points in your life where you've had some support from whether it be family, other academics. Can you can you talk about if there were any positives or negatives um, in regards to your your expectations from family and other people? that you sort of work closely with so i will be really candid here i don't discuss this very often but i'm going to be very honest with you i don't come from a family that um expected women to have an education there were very different expectations and i had to kind of you know go against the norm to uh, be where i am today uh, but through the process my parents have been supportive have grown to be more supportive unfortunately you know being the eldest daughter of eight having gone to university and moved out um was not the done thing and my parents did get a lot of stick from the community from our relatives um saying you know oh you don't know there was a there was a girl here telling scare stories to my parents saying oh we heard that there was a girl here at university um who uh, came for one year and she ran away with a boyfriend and she didn't come back and telling those kind of scare tactics to my parents who would call me at university oh, I had and the say, same actually this person must be going oh, well so, yeah <laughs> seriously honestly it's it's crazy like the amount of state the scare tactics there were yeah. but you know I Alhamdulillah, I'm blessed. Um, I'm really happy. My parents haven't really prevented me. I mean, I've gone to America twice. I, I went to Stanford, I went to Yale, and for Yale, I lived there for a year. And Alhamdulillah, my parents did not once say, you know, you're going to be on your own. Um, you know, don't go. You know, I, I actually went to Jerusalem on my own. My parents didn't even, you know, question it or just, mm. they kind of just trusted me to get on with it. And so I'm very blessed, blessed in that way. Um, and I think my family, um, as I mentioned earlier the word PhD wasn't in our vocabulary and my parents blessed them um, they didn't know about Oxford um, you know my interview came through I had to explain to my dad that dad you know Imran Khan and Benazir Bhutto had gone there because that was his only reference point yeah. and and then he was like oh really and then he was like oh okay yeah yeah no that's fine you know um, you should go then and so I had to break it down in different ways for him to understand it yeah. but now they they are, they are really humbled they're really proud and um, it, it's you know so was my family but it's taken a while to get here and it, I had to kind of coach them into during the process while being on this journey of education myself and I think it's opened doors for a lot of other people. Um, I do want to talk about people I've worked closely with and you know this is something I mentioned to you when we talked before the podcast and I think it's really important to state. Um, I have received a lot of support um, but something that I'm, I see time and again and it's something that we need to address in our community especially the Muslim community is that there's a lack of support by Muslims for Muslims. Mm -hmm. 
I um, and I, it's not only myself. I ran a twelve-week workshop series for Muslim women this academic year. It was absolutely it was incredibly successful, and Muslim women who attended these workshops from all around the country and even abroad. I mean, we had women from Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Australia, America, Canada. Um, they all said this time and time and again that fellow Muslim women were not supportive. Mentors were not supportive. They were reaching out, but they were not supportive. Um, and I feel the same thing. I have actually been supported more, and I, I, this is gonna be really contentious, and I think some people will be really shocked by this, but genuinely speaking, I have been supported, and credit where it's due, I've been supported more by white people than I have by Muslims. Why, why do you think that really is? it's really sad. I've, I'm still working out, you know, I think, Growing up, oh God, um, again, I'm just being really transparent here, but I think um, we've heard this term, or you may have come across it, is that, you know, people, our own people have PhD syndrome, the pull him down syndrome, mm. um, it's referred to, and it's really sad, but it does exist. Um, but, you know, in one of my um, skills workshops, a fellow Muslim participant um, said to me, that I googled you and uh, I see that you have two white, you had two white PhD supervisors. And I said, okay. And she said, well, how do you feel about having two white supervisors as you know, as your supervisors for your PhD? And I said, actually, I had three white supervisors. You missed one out. Um, my professor at Yale was white as well. And she, alhamdulillah, you know, we sign off our emails as anthro mom and anthro daughter because she's really literally my field subject mom because she has mothered me in so many ways, um, coached me, mentored me, supported me um, doing the ups and downs and for a professor at Yale to be so senior and to offer someone like myself um, who comes from Adam Rock uh, is, is just incredible. It's something that it's, it's just not heard of. And so I, I just really want people to be a bit more open to the idea that white people are allies um, and can be allies and just not strike people off just because of their skin color in the first instance. Mm. Um, in my answer, and, and, and I replied very humbly to this uh, participant. I said, you know, one of my PhD, the two that she had Googled, one of them is actually a Muslim. She's just not visibly Muslim. And her name doesn't suggest that she's Muslim. But her family are um, in a refugee camp in Lebanon and Jordan. The second um, of my PhD supervisors, yep, again, she's white. She was um, Christian. She passed away four days after my PhD viva, my oral exam for my PhD, she was fighting a battle with cancer. Um, and so she passed away. And we never really know what people are going through. And to, to just kind of say, well, you had two white supervisors, what do you think about that? For me, my supervisors, they, you know, they say, and you can ask any PhD, you know, candidate or, or someone who's doing a PhD, is that your supervisors go where the supervisor is, not where, not the institution. It's a supervisor who makes you the supervisors that makes you, make you. And I was lucky enough to have three. Um, and so for me, I found that I was supported, even at SOAS, even in my other institutions and my other work, I find that 
white people are a lot more receptive. I've had Muslim women, much senior to myself, who have completely cut off communication channels once they have seen me um, kind of kind of climbing the so-called ladder of success, if you want to say. Um, and I think that's something that we need to stop doing um, as, as Muslims. Because of insecurity, maybe they feel like... I think there's a lack of resources. And when you see someone who has... who When you perceive someone to have more resources than yourself, mm. then you're more likely to kind of cut people like not not be supportive like even with the skills workshops they were completely for free I wasn't receiving mm. any money for them I was doing them my own time I was often working through the night to put together speakers um, and if you speak to anyone who was part of those skills workshops they will they will tell you the same thing but when I reached out to Muslim women to um uh, to to retweet these or to share them or to send them to uh, their, share them amongst their networks so we can reach as many people as we can um, there was there was silence I was often met with silence mm -hmm. and so I, I do think that there's an issue within the Muslim community that you know we're not as supportive as we can be and you know we're not always going to get things right you know I'm, I'm 28 so many people don't realize that I'm actually 28 years old um, they often you don't say much <laughs> I, I usually, I usually, years. <laughs> I, I usually get that. I usually get that a lot, and people actually think that I'm a lot older, like maybe my late thirties. Um, I'm not. I'm. I'm. I've just like obviously. I you know. I, I didn't take a break from my undergrad to my PhD. I just studied straight, like without a break. Um, and so being Going forward. What I mean, obviously, you said you were speaking to Muslim women. Um, I mean, I, I myself you know I've sort of had similar similar experiences uh, you know sort of people are very vocal on social media about um helping one another and I and but it doesn't always come to fruition and I yeah. for me personally I'm really super passionate about getting young uh, people from diverse backgrounds to pursue it you know careers in in the media and when you actually do reach out to people and decide to help them it always comes as a bit of a surprise they're always kind of oh mm, you want mm, to help me and um yeah. it kind Ooh. of works the other way around that people they're kind of you know they think maybe it's too good to be true the offer yeah mm -hmm. so you're actually a unicorn in that sense because oh. um my experience talking to thousands of women <laughs> talking to thousands of women who have come through the skills workshops they've actually said that um they reached out to people they've helped me maybe with you know two questions and then they're like well i'm busy or don't, don't you see i've got work to do and they sat back at them and you know there's there's loads of things and i think a lot of people will probably be like you know with what i've just said about the support um probably people are probably listening right now and probably thinking oh well no that's not true or they just be in denial about it but i think people will probably be like you know vocal about it on social media but anyone can type something but actually to follow it with actions is a completely different story and no one actually sees the actions that's a problem everyone will see a tweet but no one really sees what's going on behind the tweet or what's whether whether people are following up on those things so i think that that's really um that's something to to be to be weary of um but i just wish there was more support from internally of the community and i just wish that you know fellow muslims especially muslim women just wouldn't um 
would give each other a chance and be supportive rather than just cut someone, you know, while they're just starting out something and not everyone's going to get something right in the first instance. Um, but I've been in times where I've felt there is completely, you know, I talked about this lone voice, you're a lone voice in academia, you're a lone voice in policy, you're a lone voice and within the community, it's something for the community, but actually the community is not being as receptive and cutting you down or shutting you down just because, you know, things aren't perfect from the, 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 the very outset. And I think, I think we're all on a learning curve and we should give, extend the empathy, extend the support and the compassion to others that we want for ourselves. In order to raise the equality. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if we're not going to do that, um, you know, we, we, we really risk losing um, the, the voices that are, you know, working to make that difference. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit conscious of time um, because mm-hmm. there's, there's a couple of things that we, I, I still want to be able to bring up and discuss because I, I think I, I, I find that your take on things is very refreshing, um, especially to hear these things from, from an academic and not from like one of my mates in the Shisha Cafe talking about social mobility and discrimination <laughs> and whatever else. But like, you know, they're just as valid, I guess. No, but this, this has, this has like academic research to back up the, yeah. the thought, right? Um, yeah. But, but there's, the, the, there's two things I think that, that well, three things that I, I, I want to talk about. So I'll just list them just so you know the direction we want to go in. So firstly, I guess, looking at um, <clears throat> the expectations from families. And, and there was one particular um, stat from one of the reports that you mentioned to us yesterday about young women wanting to be doctors, which I think was um, very shocking and, and, and quite important because although I don't nec- we don't necessarily know the answers as to why, it's something that as a community we need to think about and understand um, and, and, and I guess improve on. Um, then I, I wanted to briefly ask you about positive discrimination um, and, and, and your thoughts on that. And, and I guess from there is how we also address the, the um, inequality and, and structurally bring about change. And I think also within, you know, uh, internally and then externally, um, so, so systematically, but then also within our own mindsets and with our own circles and everything else. Um, so I want to try and do that in the next, like, 15 20 minutes somehow which i, I don't know yeah. if, we, if we'll get through it but i i, I don't want to take too much um, more of your time but so yeah i think the first thing is about um communities um and 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 i think if you start with that report uh, about young women wanting to be doctors because because that for me was um very very shocking and scary um but yeah so over to you if you if you can expand on that a little bit yeah sure so i've been uh, i conducted the research for the report uh, it began in 2018 april 2018 it was done in conjunction with um in partnership with muslim women connect uh, which is a ment- mentoring organization for uh, young women um, young muslim women um and so the research was conducted over 18 months and the findings you know some of them were extremely shocking there were there were there was you know almost 50 percent experience islamophobia in the workplace um you know on average muslim women experience more than three challenges and obstacles in the workplace um and uh there was there were you know challenges of um uh, networking lack of networking opportunities lack of career advice but you know also there was um starting findings 
um, of a lack of um, well, family expectations, which was almost 30%, and partner expectations as well, um, that were limiting the experiences of Muslim women. And so there, were, there was a number of things that we needed to explore what was happening between the ages of 14 to 22, which we found to be extremely significant um, because Muslim women were experiencing, there was a loss of talent and aspirations between the ages of 14 to 22. So when we asked Muslim women what they wanted to be when they were 14, um, many of them said what they wanted to be and then what they were, at, what they actually entered at 22. There was a much more diversity of roles at 14, but much more narrowing of roles um, at 22. And a lot of women have gotten into more gendered roles like nursing or teaching or kind of admin work. Um, and so we, in using the methodology that I use, which is reverse engineering, I then uh, recommended certain policy recommendations, made the suggestions that, you know, universities and schools um, and colleges need to be more um, kind of uh, accommodating to these wide uh, career trajectories in order to capture and maintain and, and foster the talent that Muslim, and the aspiration that Muslim women were having at a young age to ensure it translates to their adulthood um, and, their, and their kind of career choices that they were making at 16, 18 and 20s. Um, and, and this was significant. Uh, one, of the, one of the other things that we found was that a lot of the, while there were a lack of opportunities, the lack of um, networking opportunities, a lack of career development, career advice, mentoring, etc., that family and partner expectations were also a significant obstacle. Mm. Um, now, this is part of, this kind of follows on from what I was saying about the lack of support from uh, within the Muslim community, that we need to ensure that as, as Muslims, we are not stifling the development of our fellow Muslims and so this is part of my kind of thinking that we also need to look within and not only um, look outside of the community say okay well everything's stacked up against us yes there are obstacles there are things that are stacked up against us in structural discrimination in organizations in opportunities in the structure of education etc etc but we also have issues that are ongoing within our community that we need to also address so um, Muslim women were saying um, as part of this research that their families expected them or wanted them to go into teaching because it was more compatible with future marriage uh, prospects um, and married life and life with children and so women were making decisions um, and, and, and factoring in marriage and childbearing um, uh, kind of that aspect of life in their in their career choices 10 or 15 years before they even got married. Um, and so that was significant and it says a lot about the community. And I think if we are um, not providing that support for our, our women to be able to have a marriage, have, you know, a positive marriage, fruitful marriage uh, life and, and childbearing experiences, but also limit uh, working and career development experiences, we, we need to question what's going on in our community. Um, you know, one of the most starking things, the, 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 the most significant and shocking things that I found was one uh, participant shared with me a letter that she had received uh, kind of from her prospective spouse, um, from a prospective spouse um, dictating what she should and should not be doing upon marriage. 
and um you know some of the things i'm just finding it so i can read read from this for you uh, some of the things included that she shouldn't um be uh, in 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 you know in external facing roles she, he was happy for her to be a teacher uh, only he he only wanted um you know her to homeschool the children and things that um he also wanted her to cook um from fresh fruit and vegetables seven days a week nothing from uh, it was down to this level of detail and this letter is on page 34 of uh, the report the empowered employment re report um it was it was just shocking i mean it sounded like it was a you know a pre um marriage uh contract um from like 1930s or something <laughs> um you know it was it was, it, it was, there was also probably much more liberal and this this person yeah. i mean i'm not going to give names or anything because obviously ethics and research and stuff but this individual um who shared with me this this letter um you know was absolutely devastated um and said that this person was actually someone of the dean and um but yet still the idea of of what this this man wanted from his wife was in other words a slave if you read what's on page 34 of this report 34 and 35 it, and it's 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 far from what is realistic uh for any human to be doing you know um <laughs> in, was, in a marriage and i think we need to we need to we need to address these attitudes I was going to say that the, the one the one particular um, thing that you mentioned from the report um, was about uh, at the age of 14, there were 79 women who wanted yes. to become a doctor. Um, mm. And at age 22, when you asked Only me, and, when you asked me and Rukshana how many, we said, oh, maybe 10, 15. And the answer was one. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I think uh, this is this is the this is the thing that for me because because at that point when when we had the sort of pre podcast conversation, which by the way was a great conversation, which I wish we had also recorded, because there was <laughs> there was so much in there as well. But th from there we started kind of discussing and, and delving a little bit more into finding you know, there are issues which you have spoken about for almost the last hour now about structural racism and lack of opportunities and and everything else and and and, and discrimination whatever else, but. Um, I think there is also something to be said, and we do need to start looking within and 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 taking some accountability, I guess, for for the the lack of, I guess, conversion um, from from these young girls who want to become doctors into becoming doctors. Because yes, a lot of the time cards are stacked against them, but at the same time, um, mm. you're an example of of somebody who was able to kind of push through all of the barriers put in front of you. Um, despite literally people telling you you're never going to go to university to now sitting there, you know, listing off some of the best universities in the world um, as places that you've attended and now lecturing at university as well. Um, but where, where do you think, because you mentioned the role of, of, of the, the spouse and partners and whatever else, but where do you think we're going? Um, are we heading in the right direction? Because I guess the ar argument I would always put forward is that, you know, at, right now we live in a time when a lot of um, South Asians specifically, if we're looking at the um, prevalent Muslim demographic in the UK, migrated in the 60s and 70s and whatever else. Um, and, and so our parents' generation 
um, were more focused on coming here, getting a job, surviving. Um, and then the next generations have been more free. And, and so they've also, also kind of imposed that on their kids. So there's like a very small um, subsect of um, jobs that people can get into and, and industries because these are the ones that make money, that offer stability. So doctor, dentist, pharmacist, engineer, you know, the usual stuff that you hear in kind of every Asian household. But I feel like, you know, as, as, as we grow up and our kids start going off to university, I would like to think at least that the mindset would be different and that we won't um, do what our parents did to us, so to speak. I, I'm, I'm blessed. Like my parents were never like that with me. I went off and, and did whatever I wanted at university. Um, but a lot of people have that kind of rigid framework they have to conform to. Um, so, so do you think the future is going to be better um, naturally or, or do you think that this is like a systemic problem within us? You know, this is, I think this is a great question, by the way. Um, I think the pioneer generations, the older generations in our communities often get a lot of stick for um, kind of almost framing, initiating these rigid frameworks where you can only become a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer, and that's acceptable. Um, but that's, in, that's considered in isolation. And I think from a sociological, social anthropological perspective, um, we need to also consider these with other factors like socioeconomic disadvantage. And Muslim Muslims in this country are one of the, the, the poorest minorities, um, you know, and who are in not only the poorest minorities, but also in, in the poorest conditions of social housing as well. Um, they're, they're statistics from a Muslim Council of Britain report. Um, and when we currently, with the, with the double recession, we've had a recession in 2008, we've had a recession, we were currently going through the, one of the worst recessions, um, you know, uh, you know, worst than 2008 recession we you know th there's going to be social attitudes that are changed social attitudes will change you know as a result of these recessions that we don't know this recession we don't know when we will recover we don't know how we will recover we don't know what the economy will look like after recovering but what we will know is that there will always be a demand for lawyers doctors um, uh, engineers you know or people who work with computers and are specialists in that kind of field and so the current socioeconomic background the, the circumstances that we're experiencing will go a long way in shaping attitudes of uh, you know young people in 10 or 20 years time who enter the university um, cohorts at that time and so but but what happens is that oh it's a generational thing or it's the, it's you know it normally gets and it has what it's done is that this attitude or this kind of thinking has been stuck to and and the pioneer generation of migrants to this country are almost um burdened with this blame that it's it's it and and also there's there's a not only are they burdened with this blame but what this burden of blame does it it, it disillusions us it, it it completely um makes us think that actually this is something of the past and we do not think what's currently of the future of the, ex the experiences that we're currently uh the circumstances we're currently going through and i think so we need a, a multifaceted approach we cannot just say oh well that's a thing of the past and that's a generational thing that 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 kind of thinking is archaic it's 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 gone and it's not happening anymore actually it's going to continue happening simply because of the socioeconomic background the social and the economic um, circumstances and 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 the and the national events that we're currently experiencing. Um, from, sorry, uh, I'll let you finish your point. My apologies. 
Um, in terms of women that you also mentioned, um, I think this is also really interesting. I think both of these are related, but you know, I'm just going to give you some 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 examples here. I was um, just pre-COVID actually. I was just shopping with my mum, and my mum met met one of her friends um, in in one of the stores that we were shopping at, and I continued walking on. And my mum stopped but to to have this conversation with her with her friend, and she had a daughter with her. And later, my mum told me that the daughter that she had uh, with her, she was divorced after three days of marriage. And when my mom asked her, so what did she do? Um, her friend had said, well, I didn't see the point of sending her to college after 16. Wow. And I was so angry. And this was in Birmingham. I'm not saying that all women and all families are like that. But what I'm saying is that it is, it does still happen. That mentality, that way of thinking that women don't need an education. What are they going to do with it? It's still prevalent in the community. Um, another example is this is in London. I was on my way to uni um, as a PhD student at the time. And I was, I was actually sitting on, on, uh, on, a, on a seat on the Met line and there were these group of women, uh, Muslim women, who were saying, well, you know, I can't be bothered to go wake up early to go to university. I'm only going because I can get this degree and put it on my marriage CV. And this was only two years ago. Three years ago, sorry. This was three years ago in 2017. This, I was listening to this conversation and young Muslim women are graduating towards marriage. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm not saying that women shouldn't want to get married. It's, it's part of um, their feminist uh, and their, their, their practice of what empowerment means to them. And sometimes empowerment means marriage and having children. That's part of it, right? However, I think it's got to an extent where it's stifling women's opportunities and we're going to see the next 10 or 20 years, women kind of not being as um, empowered as we have been in the last 10 or 20 years. And I think the, the key thing here, and this is not something that people talk about, but I am going to relentlessly talk about it here, and something I feel incredibly strongly about, is the social media influencers. They are the gap, the, the, the link to decreased female empowerment that we are going you, to see in the Muslim started, community in the next 20 years. You've literally no, I, a whole I, new podcast. We, we, I probably will. That's fine. I, and I'm happy to come back again to discuss this. But And, and, and I bet social media influencers will probably hate me right now. But my, I, I get nothing out of saying that I want Muslim women to be successful women. Yes, they can have children. Yes, they can have um, uh, husbands and they can have married lives. You know, it's something that I want for myself. And mm. uh, inshallah, you know, it, it can happen someday. But I feel that we also need an education. There's so many women who do not know that they need to have a that their nikah is not the nikah contract is not um valid in the uk you get the same rights as a cohabiting couple as you would in a nikah and 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 they do not know that they can register that they should register the marriage to be protected under english law um we need more empowered women because you know women are ended up ending are, are experiencing abusive marriages for multiple reasons and leaving with absolutely nothing um there needs to be education both sides but no. what i'm saying is that social media influences are completely um derailing empowerment for muslim women right now you know this 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 kind of absolute fixation with um 
with makeup and with beauty bloggers and with with what clothes you're wearing um to you know honestly in lockdown does anyone even wear clothes you know i've been in my night clothes you know even my pajamas during at home you know for meetings yes i'll dress up um but i mean seriously like you know why why we need to question why is there a fixation on beauty blockers on muas and and you know how good i look in these clothes and um what makeup sells well, you know i okay great we want that's part of empowerment we want to look good you know it's one thing i want to sort of discuss um you've talked about empowerment um yeah and and things like that um just sort of going back to uh the topic of, of other sort of educational equality. So in terms of what are your thoughts on positive discrimination? Because I see that as that can be seen for some people, depending on their opportunities, as, uh, you know, as, as something that should be, should be celebrated. What, what do you think about positive discrimination? Um, it's, this is a great question. I've thought about it for a long time now. I think it goes back to what I said earlier about the stereotypes that sit behind um, the frame, you know, how sight is exercised. Um, I think it's needed at least to kind of get more black and ethnic minority people within um, underrepresented industries and, and fields. I think it's needed, but at the same time, I also want to know that I'm in an organization because I'm, because of my skills and experience and expertise that I bring and not just because I'm, I'm a brown woman wearing a headscarf. I want to be there because I have, have something to, you know, it's, it's because of my skills and talents, not just because of my color and my religion. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes sense. Mm. Because I've been told um, similar things about, oh, there's this scheme you might have a good chance of getting into because you're yeah. quite eloquent and you're Asian. I've had that said to me several times and I've said, no, when, when I get picked for something, it will be because of my merit and, you know, whether mm. what, what I'm skilled but in. I, I, think, I, think, I think the argument for um, positive discrimination is that, you know, we've we've been talking for over an hour now about how the system is flawed and how there is levels of, of discrimination throughout our education mm. and careers and whatever else. And so if someone is willing to acknowledge that there is a flaw in the system um, and, and that we need to uh, open doors and give access to people that wouldn't ordinarily get the access, then, then why not? I, I mean, you know, for, for example, my, Funny enough, my, my first uh, job outside of at university was at a book publisher and it was through a sort of BAME uh, internship scheme. So I was, um, you know, went through the whole interview, interview process and everything else, but they were picking um, one or two candidates that were specifically from a BAME background. Um, and, and obviously you, you get in on merit, but it's just like a, a limited because they're trying to diversify the industry further which I, I think is also part of what we're all trying to say we want to do and so if the I kind of I think that's good but, but I think more kind of I don't know if it's a rare but for me I don't know maybe it's because we're women so we get a lot of these weird weird comments because rather than just saying oh you should apply for it because like you said it's it's a scheme intentionally put across but it's, it's sometimes a tone of way things are said 
rather than mm. you know, and the kind of wording used. Like you know, you'd have a really good. But mm, I, I think the question, because the, the, the question is like you know, we, we've we've just been talking about how we inside our communities we need to address our attitudes and whatever else. But I think structurally we want change as well. Um, mm. And and for me, mm. I guess the question is because you can't. I was thinking about it even earlier, you know, you talk about unconscious bias amongst teachers. You can't just correct that overnight. That's like a, mm-hmm. that's a systematic thing that takes almost generations. And it, even then, mm-hmm. I don't know from an academic perspective, but it, it might not even be achievable. So it's like there are flaws in the system. So how do we address them? And I think that's probably the best place to, to, to end and, and to ask, I guess, the final question to yourself, um, Dr. B, is that how do you see um, the way forward in terms of addressing these things at a at a structural level so you know if if tomorrow you're, you're appointed on 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 the the conservative government's um sort of advisory council on education i say god forbid because i hate the tories but god forbid um how, how would you address um things what would you do differently how would you ensure that there is further i guess equality and, and you know even for families that are struggling f- from a perspective of immigration or whatever else but helping level the playing field for everyone, what would you do differently? I think everything that we've mentioned, and I can't believe that we've we've been talking for over an hour. By the way, it doesn't sound it doesn't seem like an hour. Um, I I think it's an interesting um, kind of question here. You know, positive discrimination. I think if there's a fine line between positive discrimination and which, by the way, I think is needed. Um, and I think it can be good. Like Rukshana, I feel that the wording should be amended in many places, in, in many positive discrimination kind of um, uh, roles or advertisements or vacancies that are put out there or opportunities. Um, I think it starts much earlier than employment. And this is what the research has guided me um, in, in inequality studies that I've been looking at. In all of the studies that I've been looking at they've used a I've used a reverse engineering methodology so what that means is that I look at a social phenomena that happens right it's happening right now i.e the lack of diversity in academia for instance um, reverse engineer by using a survey interviews find out what people are experiencing and then when they started to experience these things and then actually look back and say okay well how can we modify the processes for other young people like the Muslim women statistics that I was talking about earlier you know 79 participants wanted to enter the medical field in secondary school only one became a doctor similarly 46 participants wanted to become lawyers only 12 became lawyers 39 wanted to become journalists and or enter the media profession and only seven entered the profession so what we need to see, what we need to think of is actually what's happening between the ages of 14 to 22 and use that time frame and plug in um, resources at that time or for that age group um, so that Muslim women, BAME candidates, BAME uh, individuals are as skilled as possible. So what, when they enter the job market, they have the skills to be considered on merit. I think it's a, did the chicken egg, did the chicken or the egg come first situation? Um, we need to, yes, at the moment, we need to look at positive discrimination, but more importantly, we need to put in more time and more resources 
in those formative years in which people become skilled. And so this is one of the things that I do with the skills workshops that I've developed is that we look upskilling young people, BAME students, BAME, uh, BAME individuals um, who are at the moment in university or looking for work um, on skills like uh, elevator pitch. Many of our young people, uh, young Muslim women who came through and there were thousands in the um, in the workshops, they did not know, many of them did not know or had not heard of an elevator pitch before. And so we need to start questioning why is there not an equality of, we, we often, you know, the the positive discrimination looks at the equality of opportunity. What I would do differently is level the playing field by also pushing for the equality of experience because you cannot have the equality of opportunity without the equality of experience now say if a role comes up today all of us are going for it one of the things we all put in an application only say rukshana you're the only one who knows about an elevator pitch me and salim had never heard about an elevator pitch right you know of it you've practiced it before you've you've you're you're skilled in that area they ask you do an elevator pitch at the beginning of the interview now you're much more in a better position to get that because of your i don't know which school you went to who you were in contact with who told you about the 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 um the elevator pitch me and salim on the other hand will need to consider you know, why is it, or whoever's trying to help us, we need to, they will need to consider why is it that me and Salim did not know about the elevator pitch? And how can we ensure that others like myself and Salim know about the elevator pitch from when we were like 14 or 15 and we're practicing it as we grow up into our adulthood? Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So I think it's that level, it's that quality of experience that we need. It's not only equality of opportunity. That's great. But until we give our young people, BAME individuals, and our communities equality of experience, the equality of opportunity will always, always fall short. You'll never be able to fully master it because until the missing, the missing link, the missing jigsaw piece is equality of experience. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your for your words of wisdom um, and your advice we'll put some links um up on the podcast so everyone can see your see your reports um thank, so so thank you again for your time yeah thank you so much, i just want to echo, echo what rukshan said thank you so much this is i mean as you said earlier the, the time has just flown by um but mm. I, I still feel like we have so much more to discuss um <laughs> The, the, um, I'm the, happy to come on again. The, yeah, I was going to say the influencer <laughs> point that you mentioned. I, I'm I'm hoping to get another academic on who's who's actually doing research on hijabi fashionistas and this whole social media sphere. So maybe the two of you can kind of um, have that debate. conversation together and, and have a slight debate on the podcast. So, um, no. but no, th thank you, thank you for, for for sharing so much with us and and um, and, and for the great work that you do. And, and you know, I, I think you know keep keep fighting the good fight. It's important that we have people like yourself who are constantly going against the kind of mainstream narratives and trying to really push the boat out. And especially from like an academic perspective, because as I said, it's all well and good, um, you know, shouting in a shisha cafe about this kind of stuff, but it's when people are getting in there and trying to get in the infrastructure and really make a difference and, and influence policy that I think, you know, we'll see real change. Um, so yeah, thank you. And, and inshallah, yeah, we'll, we'll do this again soon. Okay, Thanks thank you much. so much.
so that was the conversation with uh, Dr. B. Um, as I said at the beginning, like the, the time just kind of flew by and I think there were so many interesting things to think about when it comes to... Um, I, I think for me, actually, one, one of the... I, I, cause I was thinking throughout, like she faced um, through the stuff about the, the 9-11 video that was shown to 11-year-olds um, or kids, basically, and it had an 18 rating warning at the beginning and 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 she took that forward and you know faced all the the forms of discrimination she was wrongfully sacked and everything else i think that's like for me one of those more overt forms of of discrimination um and i guess inequality and whatever else that that people face but i i don't think personally i've necessarily faced that kind of stuff directly but you you get indirect things and comments and things that are said and can be it depends on how cynical you want to be or how i guess uh naive you want to be depending on how you look at the world but i think that it's important and and dr b is a great example i think of of challenging the the prevalent narrative at every single step possible um and 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 not just conforming and being quiet because it's easier but choosing the difficult path of speaking out of trying to make a change of trying to make a difference um, and I think, like I said, near the end, it's important that we have people in kind of every different sphere that they might be in doing what they can. So I think, you know, in, in academia, um, that's not something I can influence, but something that she can and, and she can keep pushing and keep fighting. But it's important. I think that um, resoluteness, if that's a word, um, but being resolute is really important. Um, the more I say it, the more it sounds like it's not a word. But you guys know what I mean, like, you know, being being strong and, and not caving ultimately i mean you know she's been fighting the uh the the, the case against her um or, or the, the case that she brought up like for five years now and and she has that 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 determination um to get justice and i think you know it's it, it's important that the, the the principles need to be upheld and, and we can't allow um for ultimately the system to win um but at the same time, I, as, as we said near the end, I think there's so much that needs to be done within our communities. And, and, and um, again, I can't remember if I mentioned it in our conversation, but I feel like it's a um, every community has its own struggles. And so some of the attitudes and narratives, so, so talking about women going to university, for example, in my, my personal community, the mosque that I go to, it's very normal for women to go to um, university and that's not to fulfill some sort of marriage cv thing but it's like it's a thing everyone's educated everyone you know goes through the system ultimately but i know that there are communities out there that have uh different mindsets and mentalities and i think you know uh we were discussing this on our call before the podcast where i feel personally that if if we are to kind of um follow three follow things through um, in an Islamic manner and not our cultural understanding of Islam but the true essence of Islam we know the emphasis that's placed on education for the right reasons um, and, and and so naturally everyone would gravitate I, I believe anyway towards um, doing right by the women in their community but also the men and everybody else um, and it's interesting as well that you know she was talking and she briefly touched on it that you have development programs around the world that focus on on women and, and and rightly so it's important they've been held back for for generations in some um, parts of the world but 
there is also then this this issue and, and she's now researching and studying into uh, the effects on, on, on you know migrant men to the UK um, and she was talking about uh, the, the boy that was at, sat outside the school who was kind of copying along um, with what was happening um, in the classroom for, for, for young girls uh, but there needs to be this kind of um, elevation I think on all sides and importance that's placed everywhere um, but yeah re- really really fascinating conversation and I think you know it, it, it really has made me think a lot about um for me at least about schooling and, and like you know all the i i was blessed i think that i had very good teachers and i had teachers that you know encouraged me towards um doing things and taking up opportunities that have i think at least helped me and, and shaped who i am today but you can just as easily be or have a teacher that doesn't um isn't good to you and doesn't uh believe in you and see potential in you and 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 that can hold you back and, and you know when you look at the the exam results fiasco that we had um in the uk specifically and the the going from the algorithm to then teachers assessing their pupils it's it's very problematic i think in so many different ways you know going from a system of entirely anonymized where you don't have the students names on it it's just like a, a student number and and invigilators who know nothing about who it is or what school they're coming from or whatever else i think there's a there's a certain power i guess to that system and and a a parity that that we get um so yeah and and as i said like to to hear a lot of this stuff being reinforced from an academic perspective for me i think is quite um encouraging because because it it means that there are people who who i guess are on the same wavelength and, and understand um, the problems and, and I guess also have the, the data and the, the research to back it up um, that's enough of me rambling I think thank you guys very much for, for sticking around for this podcast um, I, I did pretty much all the announcements I guess at the beginning of the podcast I guess the final one is that if you do enjoy the podcast and um, you want to support the Muslim vibe uh, the link is in the description uh, themuslimvibe.com forward slash support as little as five or ten pounds a month would go such a long way to helping us continue to create fantastic content um and and to be fair on a weekly basis we're seeing a couple of people take up this um opportunity to support us so thank you guys very much i really really appreciate it um but yeah that is it for another tmv podcast episode we will be back inshallah next week um see you guys soon take care Thank you.